You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio with me Safa Al-Hamed. Um, Safa, you got it. To you got program. it right. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming down to the studio. I'm honored to be here. Um, you've been in town for the... To, you are the Wallenberg Medal winner for 2019. Thanks for coming to talk with everyone. And most of all, for all the work that you do and continue to do fear, fearlessly and fiercely, it seems, to an outsider. So It's so overwhelming. I'm I'm still in shock, actually. I can't believe... The medal. It's quite, it's got quite a history, yeah. doesn't it? That legacy um, is just daunting. So, you know what? I'll just say a few words about it right now so that folks know. Um, the Wallenberg Medal and Lecture Program honors the legacy of UM graduate Raoul Wallenberg, a Swedish diplomat who saved the lives of tens of thousands of Hungarian Jews near the end of World War II. And so this, and each year, a person is chosen from the world. And Safa this year it's you. Without further ado, I'll read your short bio. We'll go from there. We'll talk about your work today. Safa Al-Ahmed has produced documentaries for the BBC and PBS about uprisings in the Middle East, particularly in Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Her 2014 BBC documentary, Saudi's Secret Uprising, brought attention to government suppression of unreported popular demonstrations in Saudi Arabia's eastern province. Ahmed has been one of the few journalists to report from the ground on the crisis and conflict between Houthi rebels, militant groups, and the Yemeni government and its Saudi allies. Her documentaries for PBS Frontline, including The Fight for Yemen 2015, Yemen Under Siege 2016, and Targeting Yemen 2019, reveal the human cost and the underlying contending interests that are engaged in a deadly and complex regional conflict. Safa Ahmed, a Saudi Arabian journalist and documentary filmmaker, has been awarded the 2019 Wallenberg Medal from the University of Michigan. When did you know you were going to be a journalist, have the passion and the wherewithal and the tenacity to do this kind of work and to work in documentaries especially? Uh, I didn't. I, it wasn't like a conscious decision uh, to start doing documentaries, right? It was completely by accident. I was forced into it because no one else could do it, right? Um, and, it, and you were able to get access to places with a camera that other journalists weren't? It, but Exactly. So the, the thing is, I, I was saying this yesterday, I came 
to journalism from activism, right? And so when I was a college student uh, coming out of Saudi, I couldn't wait to go to university here in the U.S. and uh, start organizing and, and start being critical and reading critical uh, political thought and, and just saying and being able to do a lot of the things that I wasn't and quite consciously wasn't able to do when I was in Saudi. Um, and so, but uh, I was here in college during the time when the start of the of the, the war on Iraq and on Afghanistan, and we were organizing all these anti-war protests, and I saw the limitations of that. I saw how, regardless, I mean, if you remember, like millions of people went out on the streets demanding that the U.S. government that not go to war. And yet they still did, right? right? And so part of the struggle was also, as we were organizing, you'd do these press releases and you'd send them to all the press and you'd hope that journalists come and cover your events and like give more nuance to the coverage, blah, blah. And it was such a struggle to get them to do so or to get it, get them to do it in a way that we thought represented our side of the story, right? And, and so I got sick of it. I'm like, okay, so why would we keep begging the journalists to come cover our side? Why don't I... Right. And start covering our side the way I think we should be represented and having our voices out there. And so I came to it from a very different perspective. So I I wasn't trained as a journalist or anything, but I thought that that certain things were missing and self-evident about it. Right. And so um, and you were very aware that no one was talking to you about your side of the story, what or, the ideas were, or at least or you the mainstream. Yeah. And yeah. it was just like as more diversity needed to happen in uh, in journalism. So I uh, I packed my bags, left college, and it was the beginning of the Second Intifada in Palestine, and I moved and I lived in a refugee camp in Bethlehem. And then I wrote to uh, a friend of mine who, uh, a friend of my mother's, actually. Oh, who's uh, part of who's, the studio audience yes, today. Yes. Hi, Veronica. And she introduced okay. me to uh, um, a news editor um, in Saudi Arabia, and I said, I'm here in this refugee camp. Do you want to know what's going on? Can I write for you? Um, and he said yes, and he was amazing. And then they stopped my stuff from being published because they got really upset with what I was reporting. Because it was so good. Then you knew you were on to it. <laughs> yeah, obviously. It was so amazing, right? Yeah. No, obviously. Brilliant. It, it was it was it was more it was more of I was writing unfiltered stuff that didn't fit into the narratives of what the Saudi government wanted either, right? And so they stopped it, and they stopped him temporarily for a while as well. And this is I came to the realization of the power of reporting in this way, um, but also because there's so many people and so many amazing journalists come to Palestine. And so I was exposed to other filmmakers that were there doing films. And and, and so it just gradually grew from there. Um, and did you feel like in a way you'd found your people? Like these were people that yes. you had a different like way with or rapport Absolutely. with. Absolutely. So. And it's like, I, I already knew I had the news bug, right? But right. it was just a matter of how I found the tools to finally do that to to uh, an excuse to travel and talk to people and be witness, right? And so this yes. is ultimately what, to me, that my journalism is being witness, right? Being the first draft of history. Being able to not, to be the primary... How do I say this? Like, I don't need somebody else's filter of understanding my 
region. I can be my own filter. I can understand things differently. Uh, and this is no disrespect to anybody else and other people's journalism, but I prefer to be there rather than being told what is happening there. And uh, from that, there was the drive and curiosity to do so. And it was, it's also amazing as a journalist. You walk in and you ask questions and people answer them, mostly. I mean, isn't that amazing, <laughs> right? Like, it's such a privilege to do this job. I, I couldn't be happier with it. People want to talk with you. Well, actually, well, no, not, not always. Everybody. Sometimes yes. it takes weeks. Sometimes, yeah. for example, after a year, no response mm-hmm. finally from the Saudi government yes. when you were trying mm-hmm. um, to get their some of their side. Yeah, but that goes to censorship and uh, dictatorships wanting to control narratives. And this is the role of the media being aware of how they're also being used as a tool, right? And so I think genuinely the Saudi government, for example, expected that if they don't talk to us, then we won't have a film, so it won't because, come out. Because nobody else will, yeah. or so. Mm-hmm. So they didn't realize I had already finished the film, and we just needed them for a right of reply. Um, so, Which they gave quiet, like non, in a non-existent way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Last night you talked about moral responsibility yeah. in telling the story like that's when I when I hear you speaking today Safa um, here at the studio I I can see like you know you don't need another filter you want to be the person who can give voice to what's being like a lot of these narratives that well you need you see a narrative that exists that would compete and somehow combat existing narratives that are untrue or also or very not one-sided even just that but also we need layered conversations yes. about things so, yes yes and i and so i am allergic to it's like oh you're being the voice of the voiceless no right they have their voices i'm just and and this is one of the reasons that a lot of these uh, these people want to talk, right? Because they have their own voice and they have their ability to express themselves. I am just trying to get out of the way so then they can tell their stories, right? And that's the other thing of like filmmaking and television and um, and journalism where. They they keep wanting you to do the pieces to camera and explaining and I'm like I don't you just heard the guy you don't need me to explain it I don't need a piece to camera to explain this like just get out of the way people will understand even if they don't understand everything about what this person said because I mean especially in the conflict in in, in Yemen it's very complex right I, even I who follow this uh, very closely and for years I have trouble wrapping my head around what's happening right now so well things are okay. shifting too yeah, aren't they but there's always. a bigger I think you can sense you can understand the bigger picture of what they're trying to say. So you don't need to understand the minutia of it for you to understand the, the, the b- bigger issues at play here. And I, 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 I really object, and I think editors need to be more aware of like this dumbing down of conversations, the binaries that they feel they need to have in stories, when this is not real life. Even you yourself, you can contradict your own behavior, your own values. In the same own... hour. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Sadly. And so, yeah, often. I mean, why would you expect that in something as complex as a conflict with so many different warring parties that there is any binary whatsoever, And right? also so many different uh, powerful forces that are pressing on people so people aren't... Yeah. Uh, d- d- 
at will to yeah. even so let's complicate understand. things. Let's say What's this that? is complex that there's no black and white in this. Let's understand this in a way that is actually a lot more human. This the, the fallacy of uh, the uh, the good guy and the bad guy, which doesn't really exist in most conflicts, right? Can we just stop doing that? Can we just admit that we're really complex human beings with with uh, complex emotions and motivations? And and so I think that. It, like part of the problem of like how the, generally the Middle East is uh, is covered of like the good guy, the bad guy, Iran, Iraq, Syria, right? Bashar al-Assad. I was like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am not a like I'm not a supporter of Bashar al-Assad, for example. I think some things are clear. If you commit genocide, uh, I can't swear, right? Okay. <laughs> if If you commit genocide, I am not a defender of you, period. I don't care what religion you are, what language you speak. I don't want to know about your nuances. Yeah, yeah, I don't care, right? Mm -hmm. This is it. Those things are black and white for me. But the conflict itself and understanding how things became what they are now, uh, the historical context, the cultural context, all these things, you must understand as a journalist. And like one of the classes uh, yesterday... um, well, I was talking to them about they were taking a course in, uh, in uh, foreign correspondence and uh, and uh, domestic coverage and stuff like that. And it's like one of the most important things I think that people don't do when they come to cover the Middle East coming from the West is that they don't even bother learning Arabic. Imagine a journalist who's been covering the region for over 20 years who can barely put a sentence together. It's like, how... how do you walk around with a translator at all times? Like, how are you even filtering? This is what I mean about, like, even when you're on the ground, you don't, you don't have access to the primary information, which is, which is the person you're interviewing. Imagine if you're, like, always interviewing me through a filter of another translator. And that, that doesn't even make sense to me. Of like, what kind of the quality of the journalism and your ability to comprehend those complex things? Because even, even when you're being translated, things get oh, watered completely. down, right? And so... And, so, uh, to me, having the humility to understand these things to begin with before you even get to cover that story is essential. Right. I thought it was also interesting that you've said um, at some point, like, what can young journalists do? And you said that many of them think they need to go somewhere else instead of being in their country to try and look very critically mm-hmm. and with some distance to know like the, the gaps or the black holes that exist in your, your own country and Absolutely. what can you do? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is, it, it is a, it's an interesting tendency. It's like, I must go somewhere else. Right. right? Um, and uh, I think the most powerful thing you can do is cover what you understand well, right? That's your niche. This is what you understand more than anyone else could, right? And so uh, one of the things we say when you pitch a story is like, what's your access? Right? And so your access is your community. I mean, why would you want to go anywhere else, right? Your understanding of nuance of uh, even if somebody is like you, you have collective memory together mm-hmm. about some things. So if, for example, somebody's saying something incorrect, you know immediately. It's like, ah, actually, I remember being there. That's not how it happened. Or that wasn't the discussion around it, right? And so that's a great way to start um, thinking of how to build stories and and comparing it to, for example, uh, if somebody had written a story that uh, um, uh, somebody from New York who came to Flint, for example, and started covering the story in Flint. How does that differ from somebody who's from Flint, 
who has written the same story? Can you see the difference between this? Can, can you sense uh, the, the complexity, the nuance, uh, and the differences between the two? They will have two valuable and very different outlooks on it, right? And so to me, I'm not advocating that uh, somebody from the outside shouldn't come because actually fresh eyes are also interesting. Because right. Or often then, they, have a, they have a bigger uh, network or loudspeaker from which to speak. I mean, not, not even that, but also like... If they've covered so many other places, they can pick up things that I think you, who are from the place... A different some, context. Yeah. You, uh, you stop seeing things the same way. Right? Yeah, too close. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. there's virtue in both of them. But I, it's, it's important to have that base, though, right. right? of people from the same area need to have their own stories told. Not, I'm not negating the others. I'm just saying, but this is essential. Yes. We cannot be silenced. We cannot constantly have foreigners come tell our stories. This is also a disaster. Let's yeah. take a short break. Mm -hmm. And then today on the program, I am talking with Safa Hamad. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We've got Frank behind the glass. We'll be back. back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Today on the program, Safa Al-Hamad is here. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. Frank Yuli is engineering for us today. Safa, thanks so much for coming today. I'm just having a blast. So good to see you. And if, I, I know we've just met, but just so good to talk with you. And thanks for picking the songs. Oh, I so, love this. It, what it, was this such one? a fun song. Yeah. This is uh, Happiness. This is such a, I love this song. And so because my mom is here and she's the one who told me that actually uh, when I was born, this this was my favorite song uh, as an infant, Brown Girl in the Ring. So uh, it's, uh, it's uh, when I'm depressed, I listen to the song. It's such a bouncy song. Like it's just frivolous, but it's Brown Girl in the Ring, which is me. So <laughs> Well, also the the feeling of it, like it actually makes you feel like, um, you could bounce down the street, like in <laughs> some way, like mm -hmm. it, like it gives you that that new filter that mm -hmm. sometimes um, seems sometimes far away. <laughs> yes, um, and I imagine I, this is a very like maybe overly simple question, but I'm struck by when I'm listening. To, to you talk about your work and what's driving it, uh, your boldness that you, it's like, is completely just natural. 
like it doesn't seem like you have to have like your own like psych psych up song <laughs> you know <laughs> you just think I no, totally do <laughs> I, I want to, I see the story I hear the story mm-hmm. I understand the story here and I can tell it mm-hmm. and there's such there's bravery in that and boldness to be like I can tell it and mm-hmm. I do know the way to do it in a morally responsible way like you were you talked about last night yeah is that i try (laughs) you're like and where is the question (laughs) i guess it's just an observation yeah but it's it's something that feels deep within you to me it's I think anybody who, I mean, even producing uh, podcasts or any any of this when we're trying to tell people's stories, uh, at least for me, it's agonizing. Like, I en- on one level, I enjoy it and I can't imagine doing anything else. But on another level, like when you're in the middle of it, uh, it's so intense, right? Like, uh, how I frame. Is the camera working? Did I hit the record button? Did I bring all my equipment? Sound? Can I, you know, is, why is this crackling happen? Like, it, there are so many technical and editorial issues. And then when you're doing the interview, you have to make sure you have eye contact. You have to make sure that they feel respected and heard. And like, all, all these different things that are so uh, difficult to to wrap your head around right and uh, it's uh, it never gets easier oddly right Uh, I feel more comfortable in it but also because in documentaries um, it's never the same right yeah the challenges are always different Uh, the people are different so there's nothing predictable about any of it Right. Right. Yeah. And so I guess this is why I love it, because I get bored quite quickly. And I, <laughs> I can't imagine doing a nine to five job like I would shoot myself. Um, uh, but it does keep you on your toes. Right. Like yeah. you're constantly challenged by things you didn't you, you didn't think you would. And you have to reevaluate yourself constantly. And it seems like it's also you have to be. It sounds like there's such an intensity, but there's also a patience that's required of you if you're going to do the type of work that you've been doing mm-hmm. with God, documentaries. Mom I mean, must think uh, how, how she do it because I am not a patient <laughs> person at all. <laughs> like <laughs> I am not known for my patience. Uh, it, it's more. It's really interesting. It, it, it's a it's a sprint, not marathon thing. So you have to ch- change how you think ab- about your work. Uh, and your relationships, because you really do have to maintain relationships as a journalist in a different way. And those boundaries uh, become really difficult to navigate. And so, in a, in, but, but to me, it's, um, I've come out with, with people I, I consider like family because of it. I feel really lucky that um, I get to do this and I get people, I get people to share their lives with me in the most intimate ways. And it's just, uh, yeah, really, it's quite humbling. It's, I'm so lucky. Well, well you, you speak of boundaries. It yeah. seems like if you are in, in so engaged with a person and you care so much about yeah. their story, and you also see some of the like the, the horrific things that they are having to con- to live through mm-hmm. and with, how. I mean, I feel like that's the part that is the reason you're doing the work because you know that there's parts, these stories need to be told. It's not just the power superstructure that gets to control the narrative. Um, It is. And I mean, 
this is why I was saying yesterday about like failing, right? It's because I still, I still technically feel like the art of making documentaries or the journalism. Uh, I still haven't reached the level where I can fully convey all the stories I've heard in a way um, that does it justice. You know what I mean? Like, it, how do I improve my own personal skills? So I'm a better filmmaker. I'm a better camera person. Uh, I'm a better storyteller to tell these really complex stories. And that's part of the challenge I enjoy. But also, it, it's so daunting to 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 realize how much I am given and how little I can show of it. Does that make sense? Um, and uh, this is one of the things... This award has come in a time that's really interesting in, in my own life. Of, um, it really has given me a boost in a way, and also, also that that moment of needing to reflect on how to do things better, right? Um, and I have, I don't have answers to that, but I am, I am, uh, it, I don't take this medal lightly. I can tell. Um, when you're talking with someone and they're telling the stories, is there, or their story, is there a certain, when you know something's happening and the person is maybe opening up to you to a place that's also potentially dangerous for them to speak about, um, do, do things change for you? Because earlier you were talking about this you have you have the framing the composition the tech like these things and then you have to create the moment mm -hmm. and be with the person are there there it, does it feel so does it feel different to you when these moments are happening when you're thinking this is part of what i can show to the world like these pieces i could lift out or so and construct this story to show the complexity hmm. uh the one thing I've started to get more comfortable in my skin about with the interviewing is, is, them, is being comfortable with silence. Right? That's a hard one. That's a hard one in general, right? Between even when you're just being with someone, right? Like the uncomfortable silences, right? And what does that mean? And people usually tend to want to fill that silence with something, right? And it says a lot to me. For example, uh, in the last film, I did an interview with a man called Abdullah al-Dhahab, who was one of the few survivors of the massacre in Yakla. And he lost two of his sons and and his brother. And, it, 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 um, and, and he that had been in hiding yeah. until he hadn't even, like, until he spoke with you. Exactly. And... Uh, he knew the risk, not just to me. I mean, actually, to be honest, one of the, the his reasons of resisting doing the interview is that he was worried for my own safety. Because of the drones. Yeah. They, they could, and so he wasn't worried about his as much as mine. Um, and and so I did that interview. It was a very long interview, actually. Um, and his silences, the look on his face, the just... 
what an isolating, devastating thing that he has to live with right now. Like the burden of of carrying that people have been killed because he was around them. You know what I mean? And and, and those moments for me were like this is when you know how genuine someone is about what they're saying. Um, and actually, after the film came out, um, I sent it uh, via other people, and, and I was like, "I hope, uh, I, I hope I did his interview justice, right?" And like because that that worries me. But like, you say so much, and then only a few minutes of hours of interviews come out. I was like, "Did I did I distill the spirit of what you're trying to tell me in a way that represents properly the essence of it, right?" Um, and uh, so uh, thankfully he he did, uh, but those things were me. It's like you edit someone's life into a few minutes, and it's like, did you do it justice? Did you not? Like I worry about that all the time before a film comes out. Like I, I it's like actually painful. It's like oh my god, what are they going to think? Have I have I done it right? Have I? Um, and so yeah, represented themselves how they would yes. as them if they could. Yeah, exactly. Did I contextualize them properly? Are, did, do they feel comfortable within the entire film? I was like, this is representative. Not not that uh, editorially, the balance and all of that, but I'm just saying right. their part of it, right? Do, do, do they recognize themselves in this? Do they see something honest about it? You know, like, and, that, and that's tricky. And so you have hours and hours. Mm-hmm. How are you able to find... The moments within that, like thinking, because thinking about this one particular conversation, the interview, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then you can broaden that out to think about the whole, the whole documentary itself, yeah. right? And the the different um, angles of perspective or so. But so in this particular interview, how can is it, are you even able to talk about that? Because some mm-hmm. of it must be gut or intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you do? Yeah. I mean, this is why it's it's uh, because I'm a control freak about my work. <laughs> I uh, I research, I produce, uh, I shoot, I report, and then I sit in the edit, right? And so this is why I I I love my picture editor because she's been working with me on all my films, and you need somebody that you trust that has fresher eyes than you to see the footage with you, right? And so I sometimes obsess about certain details and she's like, I, I don't understand what you're doing. Or I don't yeah. see that in <laughs> right. there, right? And like I the trust... energy isn't there for me as like a distant yeah, or more or distant unpack viewer. that for me. I don't understand yeah. a word of what that just happened. It means a lot to me because I know all the backstory and everything that came with it, blah, blah, blah. But like for her, I was like, I don't actually get it. Right. So if you left that in, because you would think that it has like you can see the value, but it wouldn't it would um, distract from the through story that he really needs to convey or wants to convey. Yeah. And so that's so I need somebody to take me out of the weeds. Right. Like I'm lost in the weeds now. (laughs) And I've been in this so long that I think everything makes sense. Right. And then I just need resonance. Yes, exactly. And so so I'm I'm quite grateful that she, she was there and she's like, stuff I have to let go of that or or sometimes I get stuck on certain um, shots I really love right that I've filmed and uh, as uh, I'm I'm quite known for this when I'm filming I uh, it's part of I think mentally for me to relax as well I uh, I film all the animals around me so whatever chicken uh, (laughs) dog 
cat, cow, monkey, whatever animals around me, I am going to film it, right? <laughs> They're perfect cutaways for any film. Well, doesn't that connect back to um, your grandparents' house, like when you were growing up that you would go to? Because wasn't the barn off of the, maybe the, the bathroom or something? I feel like I, I think you maybe had a piece in the London Review of Books or so. Oh, yes. where you were... oh, I was wondering, it's like, how do you know this? No, right. <laughs> <laughs> but... How do you know about my grandparents' farm? <laughs> But, but that you you speak about the animals then, and you list them. You take time that they're in. So, yeah, huh. yeah. It, it's 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 my way of decompressing in in those really tense situations, um, and and so I, I I like I try to get every animal I shot into the film as much as possible. Right? <laughs> and and Shayma, my editor, she's like, no, Safa, you have no. to stop. <laughs> And then she'll she'll go through the film at the end and like try to insert them for me later. But like, yes, <laughs> what a good like, friend too she is. Yeah, I, it was actually as quite well as funny. colleague. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, my dream thing to do actually is to go back into Yemen and because Yemen is famous for excellent honey, right? And so I wanted to do, uh, you know, because bees. all the bees are dying. Yes, right. And it's like, but the bees are dying in Yemen because of the drones, the American drones as well. And I was like this is the film that needs to happen right one day uh, yes. when there aren't so many other things happening at the same time um so it's a, one of a long list of things i would love to do because they call them bee herders right and so because they travel with the bees to different parts of the country uh for different trees and it's because they produce different honey from the different uh flowers or, or pollen so it's or like whatever, a, right? a shepherd for bees exactly and so because they're shepherd for bees they're sometimes they're in areas that the americans consider suspicious and so they drown them and they kill all the bees and i'm very upset uh and, and so i'm uh, i'm i'm being flippant but th this is actually uh, a real story and yes um so things like that like and the layers for the of planet too yeah we, we need the bees yeah we, we need the shepherds of the bees too <laughs> exactly <laughs> we need so I'll, i'm all for that um and so maybe one day I'll, I'll get a chance to tell that story well so the story one of the stories that um really in a way brought a lot of attention um to the eastern province especially um your documentary saudi secret uprising mm -hmm. um released in 2014 yes um uh, let's let's hear a clip of that how how it starts um and then then yeah we'll talk These are the trademark images of Saudi Arabia. Peaceful and prosperous. A royal family in control. And this is what you don't see. In the kingdom's oil-rich eastern province, three years of protests are ongoing. And the epicenter? The coastal region of Qatif. يوجد أكبر بئر بترول في العالم في القطيف ولكن ماذا نجد في القطيف بيوت متهالكة فقر جوع تهميش. People are taken to the streets to fight against what they see as oppression. They're the biggest uh, political protests that Saudi Arabia has ever witnessed. But the government is determined to stop the protests. أثبتت التحقيقات. The 
it's nearly impossible for journalists to operate here. But I've traveled in under the radar. I received footage from activists showing how the scarcely reported conflict has developed. Hundreds have been injured and jailed, and 20 young men have been killed, declared martyrs in the name of the uprising, and terrorists in the eyes of the Saudi authorities who've also sustained casualties. I'm Safa Al-Ahmed, and I've come home to investigate a protest movement unprecedented in modern Saudi history. Safa, this is the beginning of the film. Your voice is, for us, with the magic of radio, is our guide and the soundscape that you create. Could you talk a little bit about your decisions, like how this became the frame? Hmm. So, uh, until... 2011, all my journalism has been abroad. I never did anything inside Saudi Arabia. Um, but I covered most of the uprisings uh, in the Arab world in 2011. So I covered Tunis, Libya, Egypt, Bahrain, Yemen, Syria. And uh, in between... Um, I don't think I've discussed this before. Um, I, my partner at the time uh, was kidnapped in uh, in Libya. No, no, he's fine now. He's alive. Uh, but at that time, so I, I had gone back to Saudi. And while there, I went to see one of my friends in Qatif, which was uh, where the protests were happening. And uh, the... Um, because... I had witnessed so much bravery in all these different countries where people knew that they were going to be killed if they go out on the streets and they insisted on change and they insisted on demanding for their rights and their dignity. Um, and coming back to Saudi and seeing the same thing happen there, yet with none of the coverage that the rest of the region was was getting. And watching that they were dying there as well, they're being disappeared, they're being put in prison, they were being put down. Uh, I felt like a coward. I felt like I could not continue uh, honestly covering others if I, I wasn't covering my own. Um, and that was, to me, a pivotal moment of, uh, of deciding it is time. It, it is time for me to come back home and and cover this. I owed it. Uh, I owed it because I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't want to sound like nobody else could have done this or anything. But like there were protests. So it, what ended up in the film is only one of the major protests that were happening in Saudi Arabia. So the, the protests in Qatif were happening at the same time as another protest movement was happening in central Saudi Arabia. So Qatif is in the eastern province on uh, on uh, on the coast of the Gulf. And then there is a, an area in the heart of Saudi Arabia called Breda. And there was a women's protest movement happening there. It's a, it, they were a very conservative uh, movement, but they were both, both uh, in Qatif and, uh, and in Breda they were demanding the release of political prisoners. So Saudi Arabia was imprisoning people without trial, with, without end. And so they basically disappeared, right? 
And so both sides were demanding for the release of those political prisoners. So it was this moment of like, just like with everything else that was happening in the, uh, in the Arab world, they had these demands. They weren't even calling for the fall of the government. They were just saying, just give us the dignity of knowing why our family members, our loved ones are in prison, put them to trial, even though that's problematic. But like, we need, we need justice. Right, and so you you can see online if you go and you you Google the protests in Breda in 2011, you can see the police uh, uh, beating up uh, the woman, corralling them into buses and arresting them. And so these images weren't something that you you usually saw in Saudi Arabia either. So the original attempt of the film was for me to to do parallel stories of the protest movement in Qatif and the protest movement in Breda. Unfortunately, because of various uh, editorial reasons and budgetary constraints and movement because they weren't quite sure if I could safely uh, cover both. Uh, and that would expose me a lot more to danger because I was undercover doing the, the protests on Qatif. We ended up only doing one. Uh, and that's a regret I have, actually, because I think it would have been useful uh, as a historical document to prove that many other factions in Saudi Arabia were, were protesting at the time. So, so to return to this, because in the in the film you say I, I a little bit later on I I know this region I grew up mm-hmm. around here in a nearby city. Yeah. Um, it, so it it feels as though um, to return when you said that you you couldn't look away from this mm-hmm. to walk away to not be part of it that you would know that your other work couldn't be... I couldn't be honest, right? Like, I think 2011 for me was this moment of we all need to step up. We all, whatever fears we had, whatever we were trying to be, um, not cause trouble, and all of that no longer is an issue. Yeah, like I... Because at one point I considered, should I do the film without being in the film and not having my name on it, right? Uh, And also that I found I couldn't do. Uh, If I am asked, the people in the film had the courage to show up with their own faces that didn't cover. Some of them did, but some of them did not, right? Uh, I should be as courageous. That's the least I could do. And so that was part of the decision to be visually part of the film, yes. the composition, the frames, and to add your narrative as one of the frames to the story. For me to be a voice in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because I did notice in some of the other documentaries on Yemen, there's a voiceover by like a male narrator. Uh, that's the difference in style between the BBC and Frontline. And, and yes, Frontline. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, in the Houthi film, The Fight for Yemen, it was my voice. Uh, for the others, it wasn't because I wasn't in the film. And so they thought, because if they, they, they also have a house style of they interview me in the film. And so if they, it, they thought it would be confusing to the audience for them to see me and then to hear me as a voiceover. So it was a stylistic decision. But all my films for the BBC, it's my voice. Uh, so the, the BBC version of every one of the frontline versions is my voice. And so that seems important to you. For me, it is important. Yes. Why? Uh, it's, uh, 
I think we need to hear our own voices, right? Um, as in, this is my film. This is this is how I see things. This is my script. Um, there is a distancing, what do we call it, the voice of God, right? That speaks to you and narrates the film. Uh, for me, that's a, 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 that creates a distance between you as a viewer and the person who's making it. I think it's a lot more intimate, uh, but also... I'm more present that way because I don't do pieces to camera. I don't do any of the usual stuff that uh, is done in news. Um, and so that's, this is my way of, uh, of telling the story. Right? I get to tell the story. It's not somebody else who gets to tell the story. And to me, symbolically, I don't know if anybody notices it, but to me, if, to me symbolically, it matters. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And I, I think it was interesting to and to see how you have your presence visually represented in the film and some of the shots like um, in the opening scenes um, it's you uh, someone's driving the car you're shooting into the the um, side rear view mirror yeah. so we can see you that way and we can understand that you're you're moving through this scene mm-hmm. um, and and that we do we're going to have your lens um, as our guide yeah. through this and then also moments where you actually are um, quite you I, I it was interesting to think about that part of the composition where you you must I, I i imagine set up the camera you're you're in the shot maybe on the phone mm-hmm. and then you're walking away like grab the bag and walk away because you're on going to meet someone so yeah. these narrative moments how because to me it feels like so interesting to be able to think of those like are you able to do that organically during moments when you're you're no. there no no, or no they're all you... set up they're okay. all set, i mean because i i i did all the shooting and then i hired a it's camera. you in the camera yeah right? but i hired a camera person oh, you did? Okay. for one day at the end and i'm like okay i need these shots because I know I'm going to go back to the edit uh, in London and they're going to want these shots, right? Of like me being present, right? And so like, it's, I think of myself as a cutaway in the film, right? It aids you through. Um, And so, yeah, so I trick it. So I do most of the filming and then there are a few scenes uh, that are intercut throughout the film that gives you the illusion of my presence in it, right? So you can see. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm going to try to do less of that, actually, and and have less of me in it and more of other people in it. Because that's part of... Uh, I was actually watching a, a documentary recently done by the BBC on the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And uh, the opening scenes uh, was two British officers walking through um, Derry or London Derry, whichever you want to be mm-hmm. calling it, right? And... I was like, how interesting. Like, that sets up an expectation of narrative, right? It's like, which one of the power dynamics, which side are you on and stuff? Because I think a lot about who gets to speak first and who gets to speak last in a film, right? And those things, it's subliminal, but I, I think about them. I think about, is there enough of these people I want to give as less space to the the general predominant narrative and I want to give more space to the people that don't usually get to speak right and so thinking of that balance throughout the films uh, is tricky and like verbally explaining it to the editor as well this is why I think you have to trust the person you work with as in they get it they they get instinctively why the shot shouldn't be like this like it should be respectable how you cut it and so so it's just like there's a lot i don't think people realize how much thought goes into cutting a film and the visuals of it and it's like what how you choose to how do you choose to uh 
show people's humanity, right? And that's why it's so important you're in that room, in the edit room, in the studio in London. Yeah. I, I don't know how other people don't do that. Like, it would drive me crazy. Well, you said <laughs> that also is sometimes the most difficult part because you know that you're there. As we've been talking about earlier, you, you have, have to fight the, the story, fight, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so you need to make sure that it's represented. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fights, <laughs> the arguments over over every frame and every word. And uh, that's really where the film is made, right? And, and well, that's where you're so shaping it, yes. right? Where you're making the narrative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if you're alive. working with the right people, it's the most amazing and satisfying experience. Right? So for that, um, so you have a photo editor. Yeah, picture editor. Yeah, I, I mean, or, in England, picture. they call it picture. Here, they just call it editor. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. The one who actually physically edits. So I'm, I'm the director. So I sit and I say, okay, how about we do this shot? And that. But they physically are the ones who cut the film. So that it feels like that's a team, like you said, she's been part of things yeah. since the beginning. Yeah. So that will go on. And she speaks to... Arabic, uh, which is hugely important to me. Like, I feel so uncomfortable editing with people that don't speak Arabic uh, because I'm not going to be a translator. Right. <laughs> right? Like, just I can't. Right. I don't have time. Like, if that's... I'm translating and also thinking and I need the creative process and it's just it drives me insane. I, 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 I avoid it like the plague. And unfortunately, there aren't enough good picture editors that speak Arabic. Um, so uh, shame as a gem. I love her. Yeah. Well, let's let's take a short break. And then when we come back more today with Safa Al-Khamad, I'm T. Hetzel and you've got Living Writers. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so happy that you did. Today on the program, Safa Ahmad is here, freelance journalist, filmmaker, and 
podcast maker. Yes. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about this uh, foray into audio mm-hmm. and and podcasting. Yeah. I mean, I love it. It's it's such a so when you when 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 you're doing video, you have to think of what are you saying, and you have the pictures to go with it, right? And and so that limits having complex. Uh, um, conversations, right? And and you can't introduce complex ideas uh, into it. And this is where the beauty of uh, of audio. You can say these things. You can have complex thoughts and ideas, and you can discuss them in ways without worrying. Do I have matching pictures to go with this, or relevant pictures that go with this? How stuff? can they layer without, it? Yeah, and it's just like, or just having B roll, you know, wallpaper is what we call it. And so it it kind of denigrates it a bit. And so this is the beauty for me of of doing audio because like my first podcast that I did with the BBC um, we uh, we did something called Islam People in Power and so the idea was to talk about it problematizing the concept that uh, Islam is homogeneous, right? And so I took the 2011 uh, revolutions and said, okay, let's look at the different countries and how the different religious authorities in each one of these countries had different opinions depending on their view and their schools of thought within Islam, right? And so we had five different episodes and it was amazing because there is no way I could have done that for television without it being a boring talking heads documentary, right? And so the, the beauty of being able to have I mean audio is so intimate right yes you, you're speaking into someone's ear and into their mind yeah and it's just like it's such a fabulous way of like discussing things um, and um and having people, I think, hear it differently. When you're listening to a program on television, even when you're watching it, it's a different way. People end up doing other things. Uh, you know, they're washing dishes. They're busy writing. Like, But with a podcast, they have their headphones on and you have their full attention as you're saying these things. And to me, that's such a powerful uh, medium. And I, I, I am loving doing it. I'm now currently doing a podcast in Arabic, um, uh, which uh, the uh, podcast in Arabic are really uh, just picking up. Uh, it's not like in English. And so it's been such an interesting experiment because, as you know, in Arabic, there are classical Arabic, which is what media use, and that's colloquial. And so I've been able to not do it in classical Arabic like I usually do for BBC Arabic. Um, and it's, it's just it's, there's something more freeing and casual and more immediate immediate and accessible, I think, about that. Um, and yeah, but because it changes the experience for the listener. Yeah. It sounds like that's what you want the work of this this new podcast. What's the, what's the name of it, Safa? So it's called the Saudi Al-Uzma, which is a play on uh, MAGA in the States of Make America Great Again. And so it's, oh. ca- it's called The Great Saudi Arabia. And so the idea is like, because we're discussing concepts of human rights in Saudi Arabia, right. and it's like Saudi Arabia will be great when you have democracy and plurality and representation and everything that would make Saudi Arabia great, right? And so it's to play on that. Um, and I'm the pilot season of uh, uh, of it. And so each season will be a different Saudi in exile uh, discussing different concepts. So the next one will be feminism. 
and the States. Yes, which I'm very excited about. That will uh, hopefully be done by Hala Dosari. And uh, another one will be by Abdullah. Uh, uh, so each each one of us, within their own purview and knowledge, will be discussing these things via this podcast, right? And so I, it's, it's such a great concept to me because it's like then we all get to have a deeper, more meaningful conversation with people inside Saudi Arabia in Arabic. So it's not, the problem is a lot of the coverage on Saudi right now is coming from broad foreigners. Um, coming and you know spending uh, a few weeks in Saudi and then they think you know they can report on it okay fine but like that's a different and superficial level of uh, of reporting on a country it's time that we you know we cover this we talk about this so what's the vehicle for this because the other one uh, your first podcast is on the BBC, BBC. Yeah. and so is this one also on the BBC uh, no it's not will it be or uh, BBC it will not it will not BBC Arabic haven't gotten to the podcast uh, 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 okay. phenomena yet so how did this idea come come so, to be uh, it, it, so we were talking about it as an, amongst us Saudis, and Amnesty offered to support it. So they're Wonderful. the ones who are funding it. Oh. Uh, but you can Amnesty find International. it, uh, Amnesty International, and you can find it on SoundCloud and uh, and iTunes and Google and, and all the usual uh, platforms. Which is a, also the great thing about audio; it's hard to censor. Uh, it's so easily shared, um, and so for our region, this is perfect. Uh, and so how are you going to censor us? You can't. So for your episodes, uh-huh. what, how, are, how are they shaped? Are you talking with people? Like, are you going out and interviewing? Is it where you're also, um, script, like there's essays, so you have a, a script of things that you want to say? Or what, how, is it, how is it moving or working? Yeah, so uh, basically for me it's an audio documentary, right? And so I, I am, uh, it, it is produced, uh, it is mostly my voice, uh, but because I'm, I'm doing Jamal's murder, right? Okay. Can we talk about this, please? Yes. Uh, and so I am... Um, the thing in Saudi Arabia, especially after his death, the, there was a um, very concerted effort by the government to control the narrative on, oh, he's just disappeared. Uh, oh, he was probably killed by someone else in Istanbul. Like the layers of lies and gaslighting of the Saudi government, of its people about what actually happened until they were finally forced to admit that they actually are the ones who killed him in the consulate. Be- because in Istanbul they they received they the, because they were leaking all the all the, all the, the video yeah, footage yeah ex- the audio from the embassy yeah. or the audio. Um, and so what I did is um, uh, I translated the UN Special Rapporteur's report on his murder. Uh, into Arabic, which was not accessible before. It was only produced in English. And I not only uh, translated it, uh, the first episode, I read the last 10 minutes of his life. And many people had not heard that before. What do you mean by that? Uh, So nobody really... I, I think in Saudi... the. People were too afraid to even like read the report or actually understand what happened, and so. So it, from the report, I'm sorry, just to yeah. clarify, the last ten minutes of his life would be what was included what in heard. that report from the audio yeah. that was okay. Exactly. Great. Yeah. And what is? Could you, off the top of your head, are you able to give an example of what that would be like? Well, so the, if the, we were hearing the the, the the recordings basically revealed that one they were preparing for him. They already knew that he was coming, and 
uh, based on all information that is available to us so far, that they fully intended to kill him. Um, and so the revealed uh, uh, audio also uh, discussed uh, um, the uh, so they anesthetized him and the doses that they gave him uh, uh, were meant to kill him. Um, that he vomited and choked on his own vomit and possibly died because of that as well before they even... And so it's actually quite gruesome. Um, and I felt like for Saudis who want to deny the complicity of the state in this murder, they needed to hear it, right? And so if, hear the details. And then if you find it in your heart to walk away thinking that the government had the right to kill someone like that, then it's up to you, right? But hear it. Hear it. Yeah. And with your other work, Safa, and thank goodness for this work of yours, see it and hear it. The stories that you're telling, they're so, they're, they need to be in the world. Thank you for your work. Thank you for having me. Today, Safa Al-Hamad, freelance journalist, filmmaker. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. your life behind that guitar You may get gone but you won't get far You're not the first You won't be the last And you can tell us all about it When you come crawling back that road you're on Just winds and winds You're spinning your wheels Wasting your time. WCBNFM and other archives. Original air date November 6, 2011 at 6 a.m. Over me. Keep just behind me, she whispered. I followed her across the room into the kitchen. Now we were by the door and I heard the scuffle of heavy feet in there on the crinkly linoleum. Grandma turned back to me. Under my nose she struck a wooden match with her thumbnail. She touched the match to something in her other hand. It sizzled. Then she leaned down and rolled it into the invisible kitchen. Explore new worlds. Find out what happens next by reading the book A Long Way from Chicago by Richard Peck. For other great book ideas, visit literacy.gov. A message from the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Yeah, or a glamour girl. Or maybe she's just some sort of snob. 
Yeah, maybe just some Pollock. Or a warmonger. Yeah, or an S&M queen. Oh, it's just a teenager. Yeah, maybe it's one of those hell's angels. You think it's a baby's butch? Well, it could be a fag 